The scripture reading today is from the second chapter of the Gospel of John. It is the story of Jesus visiting the temple and overturning the table of the money changers. Turn with us to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, as we share the story together. This reading is a compilation of translations and paraphrases, including the New International Version, the Message, the Amplified Bible, and the Voice. Hear the word of the Lord. The time was near to celebrate the Passover. The Passover celebration is the festival commemorating when God rescued his children from slavery in Egypt. So, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the celebration. He entered the temple to worship. He found the temple teeming with people selling animals. The porches and colonnades were filled with merchants selling sacrificial animals such as doves, oxen, and sheep. The lone sharks were also there in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased, chased them, them out, out of the, of the temple. temple. He stampeded the sheep and cattle. He upended the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. And then he told the dove merchants in no uncertain terms. What are you still doing here? Get all of your stuff and haul them out of here. Stop making my father's house a place for your profit. Jesus rebuked them for making the temple a place of commerce. A marketplace rather than a worship space. A house of merchandise rather than a house of prayer. They had turned the temple into a shopping mall. The disciples were astounded at what Jesus said. Later on, they remembered that the Hebrew scriptures said, Jealous devotion for God's house consumes me. Some of the Jews cried out to him, Who gave you the right to shut us down? If it is God, then show us a sign. You want a sign? Here's a sign. I will destroy, you destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Three days? This temple took more than 46 years to complete, and you think you can replicate that feat in three days? But Jesus was talking not about a physical structure, but about his body as the temple. Later, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, that his temple would be raised in three days. Then they put two and two together and believed both what was written in scripture and what Jesus had said. Later in the week, during the Passover feast in Jerusalem, the crowds were watching Jesus closely. Many began to believe in him because of the signs he was doing. But Jesus did not trust entrust himself to them because he knew all people and understood the superficiality and fickleness of human nature. He didn't need anyone to prove to him the character of humanity. Jesus saw in their hearts, in the very core of their being. I know what you are made of. This is the word come to life in the reading of it. This is the word of God given to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God.
it's the most out of place, out of character story in all of the Gospels. I would argue it's the most unusual and out of place story in all of the New Testament. And I think it could be argued that this story is the most unusual and strange and out of place story in all of Scripture. Jesus is angry. Not the typical picture we have of him. Not only is he angry, he's destructive. He's tearing things up. How would you like it if Chuck Irby, on his first Sunday, as the interim pastor came in and started tearing up the pews? Try that one next Sunday, will you? How about if he got out a whip and made some whip and cords and started pounding on Doug and Brandon? Jesus is angry here, and everything he seems to do is out of context. It's out of control. I wouldn't be the only parent here that thinks that what he's basically doing is throwing a tantrum. And he's angry. Doesn't fit the picture we have of Jesus, does it? This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus who's angry. It's a side of God that we don't like to talk about. And frankly, preachers don't like to preach about. We'd like to preach about the God who loves everybody and everything's fine and he forgives everyone and everybody's okay and are you okay and everything's fine and God loves you and so do I. Instead, what we have here is an example of the God of judgment, the God of the Old Testament, if you will, a God who brings judgment in places, who brings fire, who causes earthquakes, who sends locusts and plagues and illness. How do we reconcile? How do we reconcile this picture of Jesus that seems at best out of place with the concept we have of Jesus and who he is. How do you reconcile a savior who is so compassionate that he heals, so compassionate that he forgives even the woman caught in the act of adultery and tells her to go and sin no more, but is so mad and so angry at these money changers and money lenders in the temple, these tradesmen, that he destroys their livelihood and threatens them physically with whips and cords. How do we reconcile that? Let me put my professor's hat on for a moment. May I? Thank you. I was going to do it anyway, but I appreciate the permission. Thank you. Learning how to decipher scripture, to study scripture, to understand it, to interpret the scripture properly, to apply those teachings correctly, is an incredibly rewarding yet challenging activity. It's why we spend a lifetime studying the Bible. For instance, there are some who have interpreted this particular text 
in a very literal way. And as such, they have adopted their leadership style to reflect what Jesus does here in verses 13 to 25. Imagine a church leader who is always angry and is always on the prowl. And we have pastors doing that very same thing. And we have lay people doing that very same thing. It's okay, you can amen this. Everybody knows it. We just don't talk about it. There are churches that are bullied by lay people that sit in the pew. They drive out pastors. They drive out people. They usurp control and maintain control by bullying others. It's a tragedy, and churches die and never become what God wants them to be because there are bullies in the pew. There are also church leaders, pastors, who adopt this same style of leadership, and they abuse people from the pulpit, calling them out, telling them things, and telling them how bad they are. In some of our travels since we have been here, Joni and I have been listening to what I think is one of the most amazing and disturbing podcasts I've ever listened to in my life. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill became one of the largest churches in the world in Seattle, growing from a small group, a handful of people that started it, to over 15,000 with campuses in five different states. And just as surely as they rose and became so large and influential, they literally fell within a week, and the church was no more, all because of the abuses of a pastor in leadership who abused people and power, money, and opportunity. Folks, there are people that think that they can take these verses and make them into a model for leadership if you take them literally. And here's the problem. The problem is that that leads to what in my world in the seminary we called eisegesis. Eisegesis is where you take scripture and you take it out of context and you make it mean whatever it is you want to mean. And people do this all the time. I constantly am telling my students that you can't do that. You have to let the scripture speak. It's called exegesis. Doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, just happens to sound like that. But you let the text speak. You let the text speak in its context so that you understand what's going on in a place rather than just making extrapolations off of something that is isolated and set apart. You can prove anything by the Bible. You ever heard that statement? Prove anything by the Bible, and it's true, as long as you take it out of context. Such is the case here. This context actually explains exactly what Jesus is doing and why. But it does require us to do some digging into the context of the location of where Jesus is, rather than just the actions that Jesus performs. And a lot of people don't want to do this kind of digging. Well, folks, if you're a Christian, when you get saved, God puts a shovel and a pickaxe in your hand and says, here's the Bible, go at it. So we're going to dig a little bit. Now, I'm going to give you a few visuals to help you because I want to dig into the history of the temple. 
And so Don's going to help me with some, some visuals. The first one is to show you a replication of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the worship place of the Jews. This was created in the wilderness. This happens to be a replica that is in Israel today. If you look at it, it may be shocking to you because it doesn't look like much, does it? It's not grand. It's not glorious. It's a tent, and it's a, um, a fence around the tent, and then there are things in the tent, which obviously they don't show you, but it's not very big. It's not very glorious, not very grand. This is the only worship center that the Jews had for centuries. In the wilderness, this was the only place that they worshiped. And after they got into the promised land, this was still the central place that they worshiped. And they did this for hundreds of years. If it doesn't look like much, it's because, frankly, it isn't. So, this is the worship place that David went to. This is the worship place that they tried when they were a confederation and then when they became a monarchy. David wanted to build something grander, but God prevented him. Basically because he said, David, you got too much blood on your hands. I'm going to let your son build this. And Solomon came to the throne, and sure enough, he built this. This is Solomon's temple. It's a permanent place. See, one of the things that David had to do was he had to find a way to unite these 12 tribes because they really still weren't united together. And so he moved the capital, the center of worship in pre-David Israel, was in a place called Bethel. But David, one of the first things he did after becoming king or after taking the kingship was that he conquered a place called Jerusalem. Hadn't been in the control of any Jew. And so he conquered Jerusalem, decided to make it its capital, it the capital of Israel, and he brought the tabernacle to this place in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Then when Solomon took over as king, Solomon built a permanent structure because now he said, we have a capital city, we know where we're going to be, we'll make the tabernacle permanent. And so using the basic design of the tent and all that went with it, they created this Solomon's temple. In reality, there isn't much difference between the tabernacle and this temple. It covers almost the same ground, a little bit more, but not very much. And it has basically the same elements in it, just nicer, fancier, more permanent. And that sufficed for hundreds of years. Now, I got to tell you that this was torn down, not by the Jews, but when they were overcome by the Babylonians, it was destroyed and, um, and had to be rebuilt after a generation two passed, and they came back to the land, they rebuilt this, but it still wasn't very, very grand. It was the basic temple. But a half century before Jesus was born, Herod, who was the ruler over this area, decided he wanted to curry favor with the Jews, and so he started a project to refurbish the temple. He didn't tear it down, he just actually built it up better. It took him, as the scripture says, 46 years to do this layout. 46 years to do this. I don't know if any of you have been to Washington, D.C. and been to the National Cathedral. 
The National Cathedral is kind of seen as the worship place for the uh, culture of our nation. Uh, it took years. It took decades and decades, 100 years to build. This took 46 years to build, and it's referred to as Herod's Temple. Now, just to give you a, a little understanding of dimensions, here's about a six-second video. <laughs> See if we got this done. That, oh, oh, no, first, let me give you comparisons. There's the next one. Sorry about that, Don. There's a comparison here. This is between Herod's temple and there's Solomon's temple. And you can see that there's a tremendous difference in size. Uh, maybe this will help. I'll, I'll do this video since we all watched football yesterday in college football. Here's comparison, a comparison of all of these things uh, to how they would fit in a football stadium. Don? We're hoping. We'll see if this works. <laughs> I thought it was interesting because it gave a visual of the tremendous difference in size between the three uh, temples. Because the tabernacle is about 50 yards long. It's about half a football field. The, um, the Temple of Solomon is about the same, but instead of just being inside the lines on a 50, in the 50-yard line, it kind of spills over on the sidelines. But Herod's Temple takes not only the football field, but most of the stadium with it. It's just really, really big. Um, it's not just the size of it. Ah, I hear it, but that's not it. Just teasing you. <laughs> I want to talk about the theology of the temple as well, because it's not just about its size and construction. It's about what the temple means theologically. The importance of the temple is that it becomes the place where earth and heaven meet. Let me say that again. The temple in Jewish theology is the place where heaven and earth meet. Put it in Star Trek language. It's a portal between earth and heaven. Oh, I got, I got some. Oh, yeah, now I get it. Okay. <laughs> this is the place where earth and heaven come together. And particularly, it happens in the innermost sanctum of the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies. Now, there are precedents for this idea of earth and heaven coming together. Uh, there are uh, this, this kind of earthly and divine connection. For instance... Uh, the Garden of Eden is in some ways a place where earth and heaven meet, right? Because Adam and Eve and God walk and talk in the cool of the garden, and there are no barriers. There is this direct connection between that which is created and the one who creates. Then, a little later on in Genesis, there is Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob's ladder, this vision and dream that Jacob has of a ladder between heaven and earth, and the angels are ascending and descending. This is kind of this connection between eternity and the finite reality of earth. The tent of meeting, you might remember this. Moses would go into a tent of meeting. Even when they made the tabernacle, he still went into a tent of meeting, and the people would come out of their tents, and they would watch the Shekinah, the glory of God, come out of the clouds, out of the heavens, and envelop the tent where Moses was, and Moses and God would talk directly together. Then, of course, is the tabernacle and the temple. The Holy of Holies becomes the place 
where earth and heaven connect. So when Jesus claims to be able to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, you can imagine what that sounds like to a group of Jews who are heaped in this kind of theology who says, you mean to tell me you're going to tear down the connection, the portal, the, the, the movement between heaven and earth? It scares them. And you can understand why the Jews react the way that they do. What they fail to understand, and what, frankly, we fail to fully realize even today, is that Jesus is not tearing down the temple, and he's not destroying the connection. The simple fact is that Jesus is now the connection between heaven and earth. Come on, that's a good one. Jesus is the connection. He's the portal. He is the connection between heaven and earth. Wherever Jesus exists, wherever Jesus is, heaven and earth, the realities of both, come together. In him, heaven and earth meet together perfectly. Eternity and temporality exist, and they find their meaning. This is the full meaning of what we've studied in John 1. In John 1, when he talks about the Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God, the Word was God, what he's saying is that this Jesus, this Word, this child that has been born, this child that grew up and was among us, this child is the Word of God. He is incarnate, and what has happened is that heaven and earth meet in him. If you don't understand the incarnation, and I understand because it can be complicated, but if you don't understand the incarnation, then let me tell you that this is what the incarnation means. It means that the eternal God, Jesus, who has always been, is enfleshed into human form so that the infinite reality of God can be seen in the finite reality of a person of a human being. Heaven and earth meet in Jesus Christ. If Jesus, if the Holy Spirit, if God is present here in this place, do you believe that God is present with us today? Good. If he's present here, if he is present in our worship, even in announcements, there is a God, then this is the place now where heaven and earth meet. I'm not talking about the building. See, this is where the Jews got off track a bit. They made the building the place that they worshiped. We don't worship a building. This is a functional, this is a functional uh, movement of brick and mortar that we use. What makes it holy or what makes the gathering grounds holy or a Sunday school classroom or the youth room or the fellowship hall or the offices, what makes any part of this building holy is not that we have said nobody can do anything there, it's that we meet God in these places. And when Jesus is present among us, both heaven and earth are formally and fully come together. And because an encounter with Jesus, as we started out these seven weeks together, because an encounter with Jesus always creates transformation in us, then every time we gather for worship together, guess what? 
It's a new year. It's a new day. It's a new week. It's a new experience. It's new life. I proclaim that in 2022, every Sunday will be New Year's. I love proclaiming things I don't have to be here to do. But that's the reality of our gathering. When Jesus is in our midst, behold, all things become new. It seems odd to think that Jesus clearing out the temple is such a key theological moment. But I think it is. Because in this strange and odd and seemingly out of place story, Jesus is defending the holiness of heaven in the midst of the decadence of human sinfulness. These loan sharks and money lenders and purveyors of animals, they tried to make the temple and the worship experience purely human. Jesus walked in and said, it's not. When you worship God, heaven and earth come together. Oh, man. What? If you don't come in to worship next Sunday excited about the opportunity to sing praises and to worship the Lord, something is wrong with you. Well, I got an amen on that one. This is the great joy of what it means to be a Christian. We gather together, even if it's just two or three, in our, and God is in our midst. Heaven and earth become realities together. It's why we pray. We don't pray to bring heaven down. Heaven's already here. We pray to get in touch with God, to be in God, to be communicative with God, because when we pray, heaven and earth come together. And when we worship, every time we worship, the presence of God means that we are in the holy of holies where earth and heaven meet. See, Jesus knows the nature of humankind. He knows what people are like. He's lived through Adam's fall. He's lived through Korah's rebellion, through David and Bathsheba's infidelity together, to Solomon's loss of faith and the loss of the kingdom, splintering into two different nations, a north and a south, to the exile where foreigners came in and destroyed the land, and yes, destroyed the temple. He has had to deal in memoriam with stiff-necked people, obstinate people like, I don't know, you and me who refused to worship God in fullness and in praise, to worship the only true God, to worship where heaven and earth come together. The Jews are, we are, those stiff-necked people. Jesus understands us. He knows us. And yet, look at this, folks. Look at this. 
he's still here. He comes in our midst. And he allows heaven to be a part of what it is that we do and what it is that we experience. And in light of this deeper understanding of what Jesus is doing, of this contextual reality, Jesus' actions are, if anything, underplayed by him. Totally in character. Like God in the garden, Jesus defends the human divine connection. This earth and heaven coming together to meet in him. Ah, oh, folks. I have the feeling that some of you think that First Church is at a crossroads. A pastor is left. What are we going to do? Oh, my gosh. All this upheaval, all these changes. Oh, God, why does there have to be change? Can't it just be like it was? And God says, no, I can't. Because when I come, I bring change. So guess what? You're not here because God has abandoned you. You're not in this season of change because God has turned his back on you. You're here in the midst of who God is and what he's doing. This is the reality. God is about to bring incredible change transformation to this church in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine now. I don't want change, Lord. Well, that when you die, you'll be comfortable in hell because it'll be a lot like what we've lived through over the last couple of years. But if you die, and by the grace of God, you intended and hope and prayed to go to heaven, then trust me, things are going to be different up there than they is down here. This is not just a new year. It's not just a new week, a new month, a fresh start, a new start, a fresh beginning, a transformative moment. No, this is the reality that God is in our midst and heaven and earth are being experienced in this place. I've, I've seen that. I've experienced that here. In the incredible worship that Brandon leads, in the marvelous leadership that Doug gives, in the incredible children's program that Mindy takes part of, I've seen the dynamic of heaven and earth meeting when this church gathers together. I think you are in for a grand ride because God does not disturb things that he does not want to grow and become. And I believe this church is a place where such things not only are done, but will continue to be done. As we were getting ready for the service today, Sean said he had a testimony. He wasn't sure what he was going to say. I appreciate that. I understand that perfectly. But he felt like he had some things he wanted to share. And I thought maybe this is one of those moments when heaven and earth meet. Sean, come share with us the testimony that God's laid on your heart.
the beginning of this will sound like a testimony of me and my family, but I want you to have ears to hear that this is a testimony about you. Some of you might know from online or talking to us recently that my, our dog, Chico, has been having um, horrible grand mal seizures. And that comes down a long line, about six to seven months. Um, my dog, he's about eight years old. He's a full-bred golden retriever, so everyone wants to say he's the poster child for being epileptic. This is the first he's had seizures ever. But prior to this, for six months, he has lost 20 pounds and has thrown up had diarrhea and all of the issues that go along with that um, that we've been dealing with, and now the seizures have started. Ugly seizures. I've never experienced seizures like this, even in, in, with people. It looks like he's dying every time. The calls I get from my wife when it happens, the racing to drive home through traffic, the, the, the agony and anxiety that fills my heart and my head and my body through this entire process. Through it all, it has given me a heart to think about other people experiencing something like this, like a child or a family member of a hardship. So it's opened my eyes to that. That's not what this testimony is about. But I've been trying to tune into God and to know in all this agony, the victory I want to give is to praise Jesus, even in the valley I'm in. And this valley I'm in, it's, it, I'm on fire. I'm in a fire. And for a lot of the time, until this time that I'm getting ready to share with you this testimony, it feels alone. I feel failed by everybody. So through the six months of dealing with, with Chico, he's lost 20 pounds. It pretty much looks like he's got cancer in his gut. We've got him shaved, got the ultrasounds, got the x-rays, got the multiple blood works to compare. And every time I do it, the vet wants to tell me, or the ER wants to tell me, prepare yourself. Because the paper and the data is here. So the mourning process I have to deal with that and the balance between having faith in a better tomorrow for him or the acceptance and having closure, that's a difficult process. It's a difficult process. And in this, the seizures continued. And we're out of money. The ER trips, I can't do anymore. I'm at the point where I have to let my dog die or have faith. What do I do? What do I do? And through it all, there's been stomach, with the issues of the stomach I mentioned earlier, it's been a long time prior to leading with this. So I just, if I'm premature in this and wrong, and a fool, let me be a fool for Christ. I'm okay with that. Because what I've experienced through this, it doesn't even matter if Chico dies right now. God's had some glory that's been in my life, and I see you now. So what has happened is we've started on medications. We've upped the medications. And then we got to a point where we're having seizures five or six throughout the night, back to back, not sleeping, going to the ER. If you've ever been to an animal hospital in the ER... It's, it's kind of like a place where you take your dog to die. That's the cars driving in, the people walking up, the heartbreak you see, sitting in that for six hours after no sleep for two days. Just a very miserable fire. And they send your dog home. They upped his meds to triple. 
They're sitting at home, and he has another seizure. I call them. They say, bring him back to the ER. For what? For what? To transfer him to a neurology department for $3,000? To get a scan on his head for $2,500? Then what? To do a surgery for $5,000? Brain surgery on a puppy is just not right, let alone a grown dog. So here I am. And it's the holidays. It's not just Sunday. It's the holidays on Sunday. Stuck. I'm stuck. Through this, there's been some little moments of bliss. And the bliss has gotten brighter and brighter. I can't shed it this morning. So I know Pastor Brandon has had a dog. He's got a dog now, but I know he's had a dog that's passed away. It had some hardships. Um, I believe he had leukemia. And I come home from the ER after six hours, after two days of seizures all night, not sleeping. Chico has another seizure. I get a text from Brandon. How's it going? It's going bad. It's going bad. The texts I get from him aren't comforting. They're not saving my dog. But he's there. I know he understands the empathy and the experience that I'm feeling. Misery likes company, so I needed that at that moment. The next day, Ange had to work. I told her, if our dog's dying, like, I'm going to give him a full meal. So through this belly process, we've tried it all. Tried veterinarian food, prescription food. Now we're, it's going to sound crazy, now we're on a kangaroo and keno food because the, the idea is that something that his bloodline hasn't been exposed to, he can't have an allergy to. And now they're telling us two different things. He's got a stomach allergy, and he's epileptic. But the seizures won't stop. The, the stomach issues, the gross parts I was talking about, they won't stop. So this is it. I'm going to give him a full meal. So I give him, start giving him full meals, and the next day, Ange has to go to work, and I haven't slept. Now, I'm an emotional person. I'm, this is hard on me. I was the kid in high school and as a child that had multiple fish tanks and multiple teraniums at once, lining the entire wall. There's something with animals that just, just love. I love what temperature the room needs to be, the food they eat. So I have this connection with animals. And I, so I call my dad and Rhonda, my stepmom, the next day because Ange is working, and I ask if I could bring Mikey over because every little thing, every noise, they're like, keep him calm, keep your dog calm. I'm trying to get through the holidays to see if he's going to die. I'm mourning him, taking him on walks, and let this be the last walk. I'm throwing the ball, but throwing him lightly, rolling it so it doesn't get him too excited. But like holding this tennis ball, like is this the last time I play catch with my dog? I'm just experiencing it. So I bring him over to my dad and Rhonda's, and I break down. And in that breakdown, My dad gives me this hug, this bear hug, this, ant, this, this, this snake hug where every exhale is squeezed tighter and tighter and just exhaled into stillness. And without going to a long backstory, like a lot of people, my dad and I, our relationship has room to grow. In that hug, I want that for 2022 with you, Dad. But that's not even my testimony about this church. It's not even my testimony. So I come home. 
I'm in a rough time. I get a phone call from Pastor Mindy. Has something unrelated with the dog. Has something to do with the kids' church. Hey, Sean, how are you doing? Terrible. I start breaking down on the phone. And for the first time since I was a Christian, became a Christian, I had a buddy who's actually left the church. For the first time since then, someone prayed with me on the phone. Boy, did I need that in that moment. So I'm talking to my dad. I'm saying, a little backstory: the kangaroo food that his, his diary and all that stopped. He got, this is going to be gross, but he had good bowel movements. I mean, there are pieces of beauty. The seizures stopped. So I'm telling dad, we've upped the medicine, we've tried these CBD biscuits, um, and I've been, took them off, off chicken altogether. And before this, Angie and I even got in an argument. She wanted to, uh, she started to feed it, to give him less chicken when she was feeding him. And I would see that the, 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 the bathroom breaks weren't going well. And we got into an argument. She told me, I don't want to feed him chicken anymore. And I told her, what you want and what needs to happen are two different things. And boy, was I wrong. So Chico's bowel movements are starting to go good. And she asks me about, what about this medication for, his, for bacteria? And I said, oh, I'll wean it off of him be the best way. And I start walking the dog, and I, and I hear the same conversation, almost like she said about the chicken. And I realize I saw my wife in a different light. She has never led me wrong. Her voice of reason has been a voice of truth since I was in college. And in college, I had some rough times. I just realize that I can trust everything she says. So you stop those medicines. And the seizures stopped as well again. I tell dad, I'm doing these things, these things are happening, and the seizure stops. And he goes, well, you're forgetting one thing, prayer. We're all praying for you. And here I am thinking about it's this, this, or this, but I think the prayer might have something to do with it as well. Online, everything, everything everybody's doing for. And in the midst of this, I just see the church reaching out to me and giving hope, giving love, and giving life. And what I needed that in my heart comes from you guys. And it just it's singing to me today that it doesn't matter who's up here, who's been up here, and who's coming. What matters is you. The power you have. My friends outside of the church are texting me, what are you doing for New Year's Eve? What are we wearing? What are you going to... I don't care about any of that. People from church are saying, how, how, how can we pray for you? Let me pray for you. That's the difference. So I see you, and I thank you. I look forward to seeing more and growing with you through this out through this year. I just think of this church. I, this morning I'm looking at these stained glasses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the waters are reciting, and we are on dry land. I find my hope and my anchor, which is Jesus Christ. Where that cross is, was empty, now there is life living. So anything that happens on these, these things in my life, this fire that I'm in, I'm okay with that because I have you and I have Christ. And I know a lot of you are in a fire. I know a lot of you might need a miracle. There's miracles to be had. And Jesus stands within that fire. I just wanted to share that with you. And thank you at the same time for my family to you. I wanted you to hear a testimony from someone within the church
of how this experience of what Jesus is talking about in John 2 really takes place. For there are moments in life when in spite of the fire that we feel we are in, there is a meeting between earth and heaven, between the finite, between death and eternity and life. You are at that moment. And I think it is the most exciting place to be. Doesn't always feel like it. And amen on that one. But it is a place where God will do great and wonderful things. I believe, I think, I know that Joni and I will hear great and wonderful testimonies from this place about what God is doing, continuing to do, and will do in your midst. For this is a new day, a new year, a new moment, and all of heaven and all of earth are meeting here in this place as we worship him together. Would you stand with me as we pray? Our Father and our God, be among us. Make your presence known in such a way that we will never again doubt that you are here and that you meet us where we are and that your reality, your presence is in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.